talks about taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, I didn't taste and see that the Lord is good in Scripture or in prayer before I tasted the Lord in worship. So kind of cut my teeth and initially got a flavor for the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God in song before I got into any other spiritual exercise or discipline or practice. So this is just a particularly sweet thing. I can remember as a young boy, 12, 13 years old, uh, just when the house was all to me, you know, um, brother and sister at student council meetings or sports activities and mom running errands, just going over to the piano, clicking the lamp on, and just singing songs to God. And just sweet moments. The most, I can say without any equivocation, the most powerful experience of my life uh, to date was in a worship time when I was probably 13 years old. I could barely play any songs on the piano. I, I would play, generally I would play my worship set was Rock of Ages. I had a little simple rendition of Rock of Ages. Jesus is my cornerstone. I don't know how many people know that song here. I used to love singing that. I'd sing that song for 20 minutes, just over and over and over. Um, We are standing on holy ground. Uh, Just, I exalt thee as the deer. Just wonderful times of overflowing in in praise before God. A couple Carmen tunes would come in every now and then. Yeah, <laughs> but sweet moments in that time when I was 13, um, just singing songs to God. And there was one particular moment that I just remember like it was yesterday. And I, I even remember looking down at the bench. Of course, I didn't fill up much of the bench as a 12-year-old. I'm probably 90 pounds wet. Uh, and just feeling as though God were sitting next to me. Just right there ministering to me, giving me an experience of his nearness, of the reality of who he was before there were any apologetic arguments for the existence of God. And even when I would move into a time in uh, my early 20s of cynicism about the church and about Christianity, still loved God but was very cynical and skeptical about things, that one abiding, invincible reality of God in times of worship was what you said. Matt, this is real. You cannot ever argue against the reality that as many games might be going on in Christianity, I am real and I affect people's lives and I interact with my people in ways that are penetrating and powerful and transforming. And so this has been for me just a sweet aspect of of my personal life. Now, we're talking this morning about corporate worship as distinct from lifestyle worship. Which is, to be clear, the more foundational aspect. To be clear, when Jesus comes and he says, what worship is, what the Father is seeking is those who will worship in spirit and in truth. He doesn't bring up songs. He doesn't bring up music. He's talking about the heart of worship. That's what I love about the song that we've sung, Heart of Worship, is is when Matt Redman writes, and this is just so good, it, it clarifies as we sing that there's something more important than our singing. I'll bring you more than a song. Right? Remember the words? For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. 
So the lifestyle, kind of all of life worship, actions, attitudes, words, the way we relate to each other, those are the big foundational obedience to God, life postured and oriented toward the glory of God. Those are the essential underneath everything that we sing and everything that we express with our bodily expressions in worship times. Those things ground our singing worship, and they either authenticate it or invalidate our singing of worship. That's what Jesus meant when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so what was Jesus' final appraisal of their worship, of their songs? In vain do they worship me. It doesn't count. The songs don't count if the heart's not there. So we're not going to be looking at that foundational aspect of things. We're going to be looking at corporate worship, and particularly singing to the glory of God. Because singing is, when the heart is there, singing is worship. God calls us many points in Scripture to sing to Him. Look what Charles Spurgeon says. I love this quote. My happiest moments are when I'm worshiping God, really adoring the Lord Jesus Christ and having fellowship with the ever-blessed Spirit. In that worship, I forget the cares of the church and everything else. To me, it is the nearest approach to what it will be in heaven. Now, for a pastor to forget the cares of the world is one thing. For a pastor like Charles Spurgeon to say, I forgot the cares of the church is an entirely different thing. That just says there is something about the nearness of God that casts all our anxieties, all of our busyness, when we just get in that moment of fellowshipping and communing with him in song. It has a unique ability to lift us out temporarily for the moment of the difficulties, the trials that we're going through, the things that are burdening us. So we're looking this morning at this element of music. And music in Scripture has... It gets a lot of playtime. The scripture speaks about music quite a bit. Over 600 references to music in the Bible. Over 400 references to singing in the Bible. Over 50 direct commands. Sing. Sing praises to the Lord. Sing praises to our King. Just tons of information and exhortation and admonition for the people of God to engage in singing. Now, you you may or may not realize that you have in your Bible a built-in hymnal. The book of Psalms. It's the longest book in our Bible. It's located roughly at the geographic center of our Bible. And it is a book 150 chapters long. It's made up of five smaller little hymnals compiled together to help the church sing, to help the people of God sing in ways that honor God, express their hearts to God in ways that are God-honoring. And so, even, even in the Bible itself, built into the, the mapping of how the Bible is put together, even the canon of the Bible is put together in a way that singing has a primary and very important place in the life of the church. Now, we can pan out and look at the Bible more objectively, And find out that singing, Scripture says, was going on before history as we know it. Singing is pre-Genesis. Singing is post-Revelation. Singing will go on after history, after the curtain comes down on history as we know it. There will still be songs going on, rolling over into eternity for thousands and thousands of years. Singing fills and bursts out of the pages of Scripture and human history. So, God obviously has a heart 
that the people of God would sing. He created music. So we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. In terms of contemporary culture, worship is hot right now. You know, there's, there are websites called Worship Revolution. There's, there's a buzz about the worship revolution that's going on right now, where uh, in particular the young generation is, is catching fire, if you will, in worship. Um, even 15 years ago when I was in the youth group, nobody knew when the release date for the next Kent Henry CD was. Even Ron Cannoli, nobody was like, oh, I've got to get the next Ron Cannoli CD. It's coming out six days and counting. Uh, no, but household names are Tomlin and Crowder and Hughes, and young people get these CDs and proudly play them in their iPods and listen to them and worship, and they show up at these massive worship concerts, and you just see thousands, this passion one-day conference. It's one day long, and they just get tons, just Ant hills <laughs> sized groups of young people who go out there and just blow it out in worship. And that's happening across denominational lines. And some of this worship revolution, it's not all bad. I mean, there are valid criticisms in it, but it's not all bad. There are good things happening. When you go to the, the bookstore right now, there are more worship CD projects on that shelf than were there ever before. A lot of people are, are moving into this stream of we want to sing not just songs that are general and could either be sung to God or your girlfriend. We want to sing songs to God. We want to engage with God. There is a much more vertical, there's even a label called vertical, vertical music. So there, there is a movement of wanting to reclaim a value and a priority for singing praise to God in worship. Worship is hot. Right now. But that almost presents a greater challenge to ask the kind of fundamental questions of what is it? You know, amidst all of the noise and some of the good noise about worship, we kind of do have to turn the radio down for a moment and just say, well, what in the world are we supposed to be doing in corporate worship? Why do we sing to God? What's the purpose of that? What does it accomplish? We live in a very pragmatic age, don't we? We're in an age where we, we kind of think about the components more than ever before. We think about the components of what's in a service the Christian does today. And we say, okay, wait, if I can think of the real kind of cash value of that component of the service, then I'll go to it. But if it really doesn't register as a major value for me, I'll skip that, maybe have an extended breakfast time with my family, quality time, and show up maybe 30 minutes late just to hear the word preached because that's, that's the cash value on the morning. The whole singing stuff, that's for the artsy people, that's for sentimental types. And, you know, I'm, I'm really not going to sing. So I'll just show up 30 minutes late. Well, is that okay? What, what priority does the Bible put on corporate singing? What does it do for us, in us? In coming to God in worship, what should we expect? Now, I want to look, if you'll turn to Colossians chapter 3, I want to look this morning with us at perhaps the classic New Testament text on corporate worship and singing. There wouldn't be any other passage in the New Testament that would rival this passage in terms of how much it says in one verse about the corporate worship of the church. Uh, let me just say, by way of introduction, there is too much in this verse 
to get in one message. So uh, perhaps this will be a little intermittent series that will come and pick up some other theme of this verse later on. And then maybe after time package that as a series that we've done on uh, corporate worship. But this morning we're going to start where the passage starts in Colossians 3.16. We're going to start where the verse starts. Emphasize that. Do some foundational work. Um, talk about kind of the, the heaviest part of this verse and then all the implications and applications of this verse that this verse addresses will be picked up later on. But we need to do some review and some foundation work again this morning. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. If you're a person who likes or doesn't like to memorize quotes... Uh, I would recommend that you memorize that quote. That's a quote worth memorizing because it is so helpful and it is so contrary to what Keith was talking about last week, where we busily kind of just hop from place to place and we don't just say, you know what, actually, instead of reading that other book, I probably should just go back and read this one again. (laughs) Uh, We need to be reminded more than we need to be instructed. So this morning is not going to be new material it's going to be reminding us of the deepest foundations of why we sing and what we're supposed to sing colossians chapter 3 verse 16 let the word of christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Now, what is he talking about here when he says, fundamentally, the first statement that he makes in this is, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What is he saying? He's saying that the first effect of the singing of the church is that I want the word of Christ to dwell more richly in your hearts. Now, the question is, what does that mean? What does the word of Christ mean? It could, be, it could mean a couple of things. It could mean, does he mean, I want the church singing the red letters. I want them singing the, the actual sayings of Jesus in the Gospels. Is that what he's talking about? Another way of interpreting it would be the word of Christ being the word that centers on Christ. The word that centers on the person and work of Christ. I want that to be richly in your hearts. And there are two clues, I think, as to why the second is what he's aiming at. That he's, he's saying, namely, I want the gospel to be richly in your hearts as you sing. Two reasons. One is in Romans 10. I'm going to jump around a little bit. This is different in your notes. But if you would, turn to Romans 10. Two reasons why the word of Christ is the gospel is one is the remote context and the use of the phrase word of Christ. There's only one other time in the New Testament that the phrase the word of Christ is used, and it's in Romans 10. And it gives us some interesting insight into what the word of Christ means. Verse 14, chapter 10. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? He's basically saying up to this point, you need to go and tell the gospel to people or else they won't be saved. All right. So he's coming to this point saying, how how are they going to call on God and be saved if they haven't first believed in him and put their faith in him? Or how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, unless you go? 
as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, hold on to that phrase because he's about to he's about to say something synonymous with that in just a moment. Preach the good news. Now, he doesn't say, but they have not all obeyed the good news. No, he's substituting now a synonym for the good news. And he's saying, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. All right. So there's there's a synonymous uh, equivalence between these two phrases, gospel and good news. Now he's going to do something again for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing the good news. Hearing the gospel, hearing what this says the word of Christ. So there is an equivalence that he's using these terms interchangeably. He's changing them ever so slightly, but they mean the same thing. He's talking about the same thing. They need to hear the gospel, which is to say they need to hear the good news, which is to say they need to hear the word of Christ. Now turn back to Colossians, because that's not the only thing that inclines us to think that Colossians 3.16 is referring when it says the word of Christ to the gospel. The second reason is the entire context of Colossians. So let's, let's do a little broader context. Backing up in chapter 1. If you will, Paul, Paul has heard that there are problems in the Colossian church. There's what, uh, what's called the Colossian heresy, the Colossian syncretism. The Colossian church was being tempted to import strands of Roman theism, of the, the gods in the Roman pantheon, the Roman understanding of, of God, and Jewish strands were being brought into their Christian faith and were causing them not to compromise on their God-centeredness, but to compromise on their Christ-centeredness, to compromise their cross teaching. So Paul is coming and he's saying, hold on, the foundation of the church is Christ. The head of the church is Christ. And so if you would, throughout this entire book, Paul is pushing the cornerstone of Christ and the gospel back into its place. And he's, he's pushing the soil back underneath it. And he's saying, I want you to get back to the center. If you shift from the center, the church dies. That's his concern as he comes. And so you see him lift off into that issue right from the beginning. We thank God. Verse 3, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. All right, now, skip down. He's going to be saying how much he prays for them and what he desires for them. And in verse 3, we hear this the shifting gears. He powers down in verse 13. And he's going to use in this in this transitional verse four massive theological terms uh, that he launches into uh, for the rest of this book. These four terms ought not to be able to even be put back to back in a verse. There's just too much weight and gravity in these two verses. He has delivered us. There's one of them. Deliverance. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. Here's another one. And transfer. You can just hear that settling down in the church. Thump down. Transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have, it drops, redemption. 
And then again, the forgiveness of sin. Four massively weighty, theological, salvation-oriented, cross-oriented, Christ-oriented words. That's verse 13 and 14. He continues to pick up steam. And now, if you will, he tightens the focus on this camera on Christ in particular. Look, in verse, in verse 15 and 16, we're not going to read all this. In verse 15 and 16, he says three things. Christ is God. Christ is creator. Christ rules over all. In verse 17, Christ sustains all things. Christ has providence over the entire universe. Verse 18 not only is he in these remote categories and of transcendence and, and coverage over the, the cosmos, but Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head over Colossae, over Ephesus, over Philippi. Christ presides as the ruler over the church. He is the head of the church. Christ, in verse 18, holds a place of unique preeminence. Verse 19 and 20, Christ has reconciled men to God through the cross. Now he's, now he's focusing in on a specific task of Christ, namely his mission to save. And he saves by his death. In chapter 2, verse 2 through 4, there was, a, there was a lot of thought in the Greek period. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, that the Greeks think you guys are fools we call this the wisdom of God. They say it's foolishness. They think you guys are idiots. Paul says, don't listen to the Greeks. He says that even here in Colossians. He says, you want wisdom and knowledge? In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not Plato, not Aristotle, not Socrates. In Christ, all the wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So he keeps gaining momentum. And Steve, we could keep moving all the way through the letter. This pace continues. This tempo continues and Paul is pushing the cornerstone into place the cornerstone of Christ and the gospel and that is the thematic movement of this book it's person from here on person and work person and work person and work gospel 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 he wants this in that church he wants them to hear Christ time and time and time again he wants them to hear cross triumph deliverance Forgiveness transferred. He wants those words ringing in their ears so that it overpowers the noise of the culture around them. And he says that very clearly in chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. How are we going to do that? Hold on to Christ and the gospel. That's what stabilizes the church. Now, that gives us a further cue that when he says, I want the word of Christ dwelling in you richly, what he means is the gospel. And what he's saying is, I want, I want, a, I want gospel-centered teaching. Right? It says that in verse 16. I want gospel-centered admonishing. And I want gospel-centered singing going on in the church. He says in Colossians 2, verse 5. Though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness. And here, I, again, I just picture this as I'm reading. Him pushing on that stone, the firmness of your faith in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.23. You've been reconciled in order to be presented blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed, now there's a note of warning in here. 
if indeed you continue in the faith, that is, as he said in chapter 1, verse 5, the faith of Christ. If you continue in the faith, stable, there's that word again, and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So Paul is saying throughout this letter, and he's before he leaves, he's saying, before I leave you by way of letter, don't let that move. Don't let that cornerstone that I've been pushing on all through this letter, I'm not there in bodily form, but I am with you in spirit. Don't move the gospel. Hold it right there in place. Buttress it. Sing it. Preach it. Teach it. Admonish it. Counsel it. Keep the gospel central in the life of your church or you will shift. This thing topples and it all falls down. Keep the gospel in its place. Now, here's the question we have. How? Paul, how do we keep the gospel from shifting? It's such a temptation. There's so many voices around us. How do, we, how do we hold on to this thing that you said in Corinthians was of first importance? Answer, Colossians 3.16. How do you keep this from shifting? How do you keep the gospel as the treasured centerpiece of your life together as a church? His answer is, I want it filling your sermons, your admonitions, and I want it filling even your songs. Sing yourself into the firmness of the gospel. That's what he's saying in Colossians 3.16. Now, God is urging this church to be gospel-centered. Now, that's not surprising that the church's singing should be gospel-centered. Because if we fast forward to the end, guess what? We don't just have one hymnal in our Bibles. We have two. We have one big hymnal that was used by the Old Covenant people, the book of Psalms. And then we have little shavings of this, of this end-time hymnal. Of the hymnal of the book of Revelation. The hymnal of the heavenly hosts. And not surprisingly, guess who they're singing about? Christ, the cross, and the gospel. Christ, heaven is, is just unbelievably cross-centered. Just flip through your Bible and look at the proclamations... Look at how they address Jesus as the Lamb. That's, that's probably the favorite way of addressing Jesus and speaking of Jesus. It speaks about the Lamb. It speaks about Him who was slain. It speaks about Him who purchased us. And by your blood you have redeemed us from every tribe and tongue and nation. And they just keep picking up on these themes of Christ and the cross and salvation Now, that's what we sing. We sing Christ-centered songs because we need the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. Because the Bible teaches us, when you sing, I want you singing not just songs that are generally about God. I want you singing specific songs. Songs that focus on the centrality of the death and resurrection and saving work of Jesus Christ. Now, why do we sing? review two reasons why we sing one songs put hooks in truth what is it that makes music so memorable and there's something about music isn't there that it's just unique it helps us to hold on to things and there are even when i was thinking of this point two songs came back to my mind just random songs one was 
maybe the first song I learned in kindergarten after my ABCs. And it was this, uh, it's all right to cry. Anybody learn that in kindergarten? I asked Lindsay in the office. I'm like, have you heard that? No, they didn't subject you to that song. You know, raindrops from your eyes. And we had to do this, all those five-year-olds. It might make you feel bad. You know, I don't know why I remember that song. I have, it's not like I've tried to hold on. Like, I really want to hold on to that memory. That was just, that was a sweet song. It really affected me. No, I, I want to forget that song. Uh, why do I remember that song? I remember a song that maybe my mom sang to me as, you know, maybe she sang it to me every night or something, because I still remember it. You know, it was, aloo, aloo. Underneath the silver southern moon. No? Not ringing a bell? Mama's little pumpkin headed coo. No? Not? Yeah, I see, I remember that song. That's another song, you know, that's just in my mind. I don't think it will ever go away. I just can still hear my mom. I, don't, I, I can't, like, see her face or anything. But uh, I can still hear that song if I just think about it. We hold on to memories. I mean, probably if you would experience memory loss sometime in your life, I would venture to guess one of the last things you would forget would be your ABCs because they're sets of music. You know, nobody ever gets together for a birthday and they say, hey, let's sing happy birthday. And somebody says, how does that go again? We remember songs, songs attached. They put hooks in things on memories. They help us to hold on. Probably there would be songs in here that many of us could sing but don't want to sing. We want to forget those songs. I'm not going to sing those or rap those for you this morning. I'm not going to bust out my old rhyme. No. (laughs) But songs, they they hold on to us. We, We remember things. Now, what, is, what does all of this tell us? What does this have to do with Colossians 3.16? What does this tell us? It tells us this. Here's the principle. It'll go deeper in us if we don't just say it, but we sing it. As in the battle for memory, songs beat sermons, hands down. Hands down. I could bring up sermon titles this morning, one after another, and maybe, maybe two or three of you could remember one sub-point from each of those sermons, or maybe one illustration, like the cruise ship illustration, or, or like these big illustrations in our life together as a church. But by and large, you've forgotten almost everything we've said. <laughs> and so have I. You know, So have I forgotten my own messages. But, but what about when I say, before there was time? I can see you nodding. You're thinking... There were visions in your mind. Right now, keep going, because that's good. That's good stuff. That's gospel stuff. There was death in the fall of mankind. Now we're getting right to the center. But there was life in salvation's design. Keep thinking. Before there were days, what's the next line say? There were nights I could not see your face, but the nights couldn't keep me from grace. That is glorious truth. Now, we remember that better than we remember a sermon because it's been set to music. That's just the beautiful thing about God's gift in music. Now, that can be a very practical thing for our lives because aren't there times in our lives where we're struggling with some area of sin or temptation or guilt and we we have gospel amnesia? We have sermon amnesia. We have scripture amnesia. And we, just, we don't know how 
We don't know how to wield the gospel. We, it's just like our minds are in a fog. And, and maybe we're just, the, the demons are loud and they are accusing you. They're reminding you of everything you've done and said. And they are on you like white on rice. And they are speaking so loudly you can't hear anything else. Well, what do we do? Moments where we can't remember. Well, we have songs. We have songs like, when Satan tempts me to despair. That's got to be one of my favorite all-time songs. That song has, has been therapy to my soul dozens of times. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. That's glorious truth. We sang glorious truth this morning. Death is crushed to death. Song with, with mixed with that kind of poetry, it it sticks in us in a different way. It has a hook. It puts a hook in truth that's harder to forget in those moments. As the church sings, so she believes. Listen, the songs of a church can significantly inform and shape the theology of a church. I think that's one of the pastoral reasons for Colossians 3.16. The church is losing its center. It's shifting from the gospel. Sing. Sing the word of Christ. It's a pastoral therapy that he's giving to the church. If you sing it, it'll be harder to let go of it. If you sing it, it'll be harder for you to shift from it. Look at this quote from Dr. Neil Chadwick. He says, when we review the history of church singing during the past half a millennium, we find that the first collection of eight hymns was published in 1524, four of them written by Martin Luther. Even Luther's opponents admitted that he won more converts through his encouragement of singing than through his forceful preaching. This is fascinating. They said, the people are singing themselves into his doctrines. <laughs> Oh, that had to be so frustrating. <laughs> you know, you just put all the Luther books on the burn pile in the middle of the city. The things go up in flames. Luther has to go into hiding because he knows if he comes out into public, he's going to be killed. So he's out hiding, translating the Bible. Okay, that's fine. Safe. Keep him away. Whatever he's doing, just keep him away. His books are on the burn pile. They walk down the street and they hear somebody humming. <laughs> A bulwark never failing. God, we can't stop the man. We can't stop the music. We can, we can stop. The sermons can be burned and they will be forgotten. The messages, the preaching, the man himself, but his songs have been sung for 500 years. The song still rolls on it still gives us a hook in truth to this very day. A Mighty Fortress is Our God was the battle hymn of the Reformation. And the opponents of the gospel couldn't make it stop. They couldn't turn down the volume. For all their efforts, they could not shut the people up from singing the gospel. That's one good reason to sing. It puts hooks in truth. Another reason... Songs don't just put hooks in truth. They put wings on truth. 
But music doesn't just help us remember truth. Music helps us rejoice in it. Doesn't it? Music, music takes truth to places words can't go by themselves. Music, music puts truth on the wing. It lets it fly. It, it makes it get beneath our intellectual processes and get down into our hearts and affect our emotions. And it brings forth, it, it, it renders our worship holistic and comprehensive. It's not just something in the mind. It's something that grips us. It's something that brings a smile to our face, brings tears to our eyes. Music has a significant power to it, which is part of the reason why in the Reformation, if you look at the three primary category, uh, primary movers and shakers, Calvin, Luther, and Zwingli, they all disagree on what to do with this thing called music. And the problem that they both all agreed on was, it's so powerful, can the church really handle it? Uh, you know, if we get too far into this music thing, we'll just we'll get lost in the sea of subjectivity, and we'll lose the Bible. So some of them just said, "Okay, let's let's not we'll sing, but no instruments, um, or we'll sing, but no free singing, or no no songs that are written by us. We'll sing the Bible. We'll sing the Psalms." So these different three major movers and shakers of the Reformation all agreed on the primary theory of music is very powerful. What do we do with this? Well, what Paul says to do is not just sing the psalms. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Songs put wings on truth. Created by God, again, music can take truth to places that words cannot go. Now, practically, if you don't come to this meeting for the time of singing, you're not going there. You're not going to that place where truth can only go when it's accompanied by music. You're just going to come and hear the preaching, but you're missing out on this essential place of singing and how it touches us at a different level, how it awakens worship in different ways. Now, more to the heart of the matter, theology, Truth about God is not something we're intellectually reviewing as we sing. Theology is fuel for worship. Doctrine is fuel for worship. The gospel is fuel for worship. Theology was designed to give way to worship. The best and richest truths that the Bible reveals are truths that beg for music. Now, now here's an important point. We value music, we value singing, because the Bible values singing, and it values music. But, but the point of this whole word of Christ bit is that we don't aim directly at worship to do worship. We don't aim directly at the worship experience to experience worship. We, we aim at God. We aim at truth. Truth, the Holy Spirit loves his favorite thing to do. I think when we come together as a gathered church, his favorite thing to do is to grab different truths, at least in the singing part of the, of the worship service. His favorite thing to do is just say, which one of these phrases am I going to grab today? I'm gonna gra- today I grab this one and throw it into your heart. It comes home to your heart in a new way, in a vibrant way. And it'll be a different line from a different song maybe every week. But he loves just saying, okay, this week, him. And he just throws a line. You ever had that where you're worshiping God and a line just knocks the wind out of you? Suddenly, that happens to me a lot where uh, usually when it happens in the most distinct ways, it's so 
impresses itself upon me that I can't sing that line. It's like, dog, I want to sing that line. But now, like, my lips are all going, you know, I can't, I can't rein in my face enough to, to say those words. The line just comes out of nowhere and just sweeps you off your feet. Just look at the majesty of God. Look at how glorious, how big, how in control, how forgiving, how merciful he is. And I need, sometimes I need a different one every time I come in. Because we just come in with different types of baggage to this meeting. God takes truth. We don't aim directly at worship to do worship. This quote, I think, is very insightful from from D.A. Carson. Despite protestations, one sometimes wonders if we're beginning to worship worship rather than worship God. As a brother put it to me, it's a bit like those who begin by admiring the sunset and soon begin to admire themselves admiring the sunset. This point is acknowledged in a praise chorus like, and I I used to sing this one quite a bit, let's forget about ourselves and magnify the Lord and worship him. The trouble is that after you've sung this three or four times, you are no farther ahead. (laughs) The way you forget about yourself is by focusing on God, not by singing about doing it, but by doing it. (laughs) Don't the lights go on when we read that? That is so true. There are far too few choruses that expand our vision of God, his attributes, his works, his character, his words. Listen to this. If you wish to deepen the worship of the people of God above all, above all, deepen their grasp of his ineffable majesty in his person and all his works. I think the first time I ever heard Bob Coughlin speak, he said something that I hope I never forget. And it's, it's so helpful for worship leaders in particular because we, we can be very tempted to think that it's about the mechanics of worship, that a certain song does it every time, or a certain type of exhortation, or if I read a passage after song number two, or if we do too fast and three slow... Uh, And we start to think so much about the mechanics that we are accidentally really making ourselves mediators between the people and God. We're we're functionally thinking, I'm the one who really opens the door for everybody. And Jesus is like, wait, no, I already did that. What what are you doing? Reminding us that, that the way has been opened and the ultimate worship leader is Christ. And so we can get lost in the, in the mechanics of this and not look sufficiently to God. But Bob Coughlin said this. If people don't engage in worship, don't rebuke them. Show them the glory of God. Don't rebuke them. Show them the glory of God. Song choices, guitar riffs, great vocals, they don't make worship happen. The Spirit makes worship happen. And he makes worship happen by taking truth, particularly his favorite truths about Christ and the cross. And he takes that truth and he brings it home to your heart and to my heart. And worship is a response. Worship is an awakening that happens when the Spirit does that. Finally, applying Colossians 3.16 to life. Let me ask you this question. Have you sufficiently appreciated the importance of singing in the corporate gathering? Or have you relegated it to a place of minor importance in your life? 
Now, that may be too vague, so let's be specific. You may be saying, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, some, it's probably not the number one thing that I like in the service, but I don't know how major or minor it is. Well, what about this? Do you come to this meeting ready not only to hear the word preached, but to hear it sung and to sing it yourself? Do you come ready to do that? Do you come with the expectation that our time of singing together can and will have an effect on your experience during the meeting and an impact on your everyday life? Look, I I can tell you that uh, it wouldn't be realistic for my own life, at least, that every time I come to a time of corporate worship and gather praise, that I'm just blown away. There are times where it's just kind of work, if you will. I'm just kind of, I'm singing, uh, thinking, uh, distracted for maybe the second song, uh, first verse of the third song, still distracted thinking about what's going to be happening that afternoon or a meeting that's happening the next week or something else. That, that's realistic. That sometimes happens. We have to fight with that. But if, if, there are, if there are, say, three or four times out of the 52 weekends that we gather together to sing to God, I think I can guarantee you that God wants way more, that God wants to access your heart far more times than three or four. I, I don't think it would be unrealistic to say 30 to 35, maybe 40s. That when we come and we come ready and we come expectant, we come thinking and drinking in truth and thinking about Christ and the gospel and the cross. I just think the default setting of the Holy Spirit is to do something with that. He, he likes to awaken us to worship. He likes to draw us into His presence. He likes to refresh us with His presence. Are you sufficiently aware of the fact that the Holy Spirit is eager to take the truth of the gospel from our songs and bring it to our hearts in powerful ways, leaving us more amazed by grace and more in love with the Savior and therefore more ready to live for His glory when we leave. This is what corporate worship is all about. The what of, of what we sing is we sing about Christ and the gospel. And the wise, because it, it helps us to hold on to truth, and it helps us to rejoice in the truth. We're commanded in Scripture to establish a pattern in our lives by which the Word of Christ dwells in us richly. Let's stand. We're going to try this on before we leave. Let me just encourage you. you know, we're, hopefully in coming weeks, we'll come back to this passage and we'll talk about some of the practical dimensions and maybe look at some of the aspects of biblical expressiveness. But let me just say, the Bible opens up a range of expressions that are not only okay, they're fitting. It's fitting for us to raise our hands, lift up our hands in His name, the Bible says. It is fitting at moments in songs when we're singing about certain gospel truths that sweep us off our feet for us to shout. There are just some truths that they, they even get beyond singing and they just call for us just to, 
just to yell praise to God, lift our voice. And the psalmist sometimes would say, not only personally, but he would call the congregation to shout with him. Psalm 47.1. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Dance is appropriate in the presence of God. Dance is something that is done in the Bible. Dance is prescribed in the Bible. Singing, clapping, rejoicing in God. Those are all wide open for us to enjoy and experience and express as we worship God. Now, as we worship just a moment, I just want to encourage you, engage your mind in the truths of what we're singing about. We're going to be singing the word of Christ. We're going to, we're going to focus in where Paul focuses in on the church in Colossae. We're going to zoom in on the gospel. Go there with us. Bring your mind into this truth and let the Spirit take that truth and bring it from your mind down into your heart and set it on fire.